This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Thank you, Junior Walker and the All-Stars, for your introduction into a movie of the same name. The song's technically I'm a Roadrunner. The documentary film is titled simply Roadrunner and is about a guy we have a great deal of admiration for, or, or did, Anthony Bourdain. Mr. Millen has labeled him Radio Parallax's favorite heroin addict, and I would agree. Well, I mentioned Anthony Bourdain to a friend recently. He admitted to knowing about him, but not being much of a fan of the last incarnation, the last program he ran, which was Parts Unknown. I don't know how many seasons it ran. A lot. And operated on a winning formula of traveling to a location, exotic or otherwise, under the pretext of, on some level, talking about food, because Anthony Bourdain was a chef. But along the way, talking about geography, politics, history, and frankly, whatever Anthony Bourdain, I think damn well pleased, which makes us here at Radio Parallax think of him as a comrade in arms. His is truly an astounding story, and it is one that they cover quite well in Roadrunner. You learn how this edgy, addicted chef in a fairly decent New York Locale. I forget which restaurant he was at at the time he wrote the piece that made him famous. But wouldn't you know it, this chef had a certain talent for storytelling and writing. As he describes it in Roadrunner, he was going to write a piece for one of the local freebie newspapers that they have in New York and, and everywhere, and figured, you know, he might get 100 bucks out of it. So he wrote a fairly lengthy essay and sent it off to them and was sort of disappointed to discover that the hundred bucks didn't emerge, and it did not appear in the in print anywhere on the pages of this particular newspaper. And as luck would have it, in a, a truly Cinderella-type story, a Hollywood story, it doesn't usually happen in real life, someone he knew had a connection at the New Yorker magazine. It was suggested he send them the article. Imagine his surprise when he later receives a call from David Remnick from the New Yorker stating that they would like to publish the piece. This does not happen in real life. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the New Yorker has a stable of, of excellent writers and would only take a piece like this from some unknown guy that just threw something together if it was really good. And it, what do you know, it was really good and gained him a certain low level of celebrity for his success in this area, which in turn led to writing a book. The book became a bestseller, a New York Times bestseller to Bourdain's astonishment. But it again is a pretty good piece of work. Some years back on this program, we saw fit to quote from it extensively. And as it would turn out, this would lead to another astonishing breakthrough for Mr. Bourdain. Filmmakers took an interest in him, and after spending one day filming him in New York, decided to take him to Asia with cameras and see what might emerge. They had a feeling that this guy might turn into something. According to the documentary, it didn't go so well at first. 
Bourdain had no idea what to do. They weren't quite sure what to do with him. And after fumbling around in Japan, they moved on to Vietnam, where apparently things clicked. Well, at least so far as putting Anthony Bourdain on camera and doing whatever shtick they decided to do that would gel. If you've seen the show, you know what I'm talking about. If you've never seen any of his programs, well, then you need to do yourself a favor and check it out because they're pretty consistently good. Unfortunately, three years ago, the possibly manic depressive, I, I, don't, know, I don't know what his diagnosis is. He certainly had his demons, led to him taking his own life. Clint Worthington, writing in Consequence.net, said three years after Anthony Bourdain took his own life, many fans still wonder why which helps explain how a documentary about the irreverent chef and beloved globe-traveling TV host is getting a wide summer release. The urge to know why bleeds through every inch of Morgan Neville's empathetic film, but Roadrunner doesn't pretend to come away with the final answer about the subject's suicide. Instead, it sketches a portrait of the man as he was, a vibrant, prickly, deeply feeling student of the world. If I were going to voice one criticism of this documentary, which, which I like very much... I would have to say that in the end, it was a little too morose. In the end, they talked in the documentary about how important it was to celebrate his life and good works. But in this correspondence opinion, failed to do so adequately. They had such a broad range of material they could have drawn from uh, during the middle of the film and, and at the, again at the end that, well, they, they just should have. <laughs> the, the, the viewer of the documentary suffers by the fact that they didn't do enough of it. That's my opinion. I was fortunate enough to see him live uh, in a talk he gave down in San Jose Civic Auditorium some years back. The Anthony Bourdain that strutted across the stage that night was not quite the guy you see in the television program. His edginess came through in person. They cleaned him up quite a bit for the show. But make no mistake about it, I, I was and remain a fan of his work and think... Oh, I, I hate to say this, but I, I, I do think that uh, what we try to do on this show and what he tried to do on his various programs uh, certainly have parallels. He seemed to want to inform his audience of things they should know about and be entertaining while he did so. And uh, that's what we try to do. Wouldn't you say, Mr. McMillan? Yes, but we don't get to eat. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. He ate better than we do. Anyway, I, I did catch the movie in a recent visit to Davis, California, at the good old Varsity Theater, after which I went across the street to the Avid Bookstore and grabbed a copy of a book that Bourdain had written. It was titled <laughs> The Nasty Bits, with the sub-headline, Collected Varietal Cuts, Usable Trim, Scraps, and Bones. I think we would do, and you know, I think we would do well to just extract a few quotes from this volume. Fragments, pieces of the strange ride, the larger dysfunctional but wondrous thing my life has become. It's been like this for the last five years. Always in motion, nine, then ten, then eleven months out of the twelve. Maybe three or four nights a month spent in my own bed. The rest in planes, cars, trains, dog sleds, sailboats, helicopters, hotels, longhouses, tents, lodges, jungle floors. I've become some kind of traveling salesman or paid wanderer both blessed and doomed to travel this world until I can't anymore. Funny what happens when your dreams come true. My pal A.A. A. Gill once suggested that the older he gets and the more he travels, the less he knows. And I know what he means now. 
Seeing the planet as I'm seeing it, you're constantly reminded of what you don't know, how much more there is to see and learn, how damn big and mysterious this world is. It's both frustrating and addicting, which only makes it harder when you visit, say, China for the first time and realize how much more of it there is and how little time you have to see it. It's added a frantic quality to my already absurd life and an element of both desperation and resignation. Travel changes you. As you move through this life and this world, you change things slightly. You leave marks behind, however small. And in return, life and travel leaves marks on you. Most of the time, those marks on your body or on your heart are beautiful. Often, though, they hurt. When I look back on the last five years since I wrote the obnoxious over-testosterone memoir that transported me out of the kitchen and into a never-ending tunnel of pressurized cabins and airport lounges, it's a rush of fragments, all jostling for attention. Some good, some bad, some pleasurable, and some excruciating to remember. Much, I suspect, like the pieces in this collection. I've done a lot of writing for magazines and newspapers in the last few years, and it's the better morsels, I hope, from that work that follow. A lot of it is hopelessly dated and obviously written for a British or Australian publication, and I've added some accompanying notes at the end by way of explanation or apology. I've been writing this stuff for much of the same reasons behind my frenetic traveling. Because I can. Because there's so little time. Because there's so much to see and remember. Because... I always think for sure the next book or the next show will tank, and I better make some damn money while I can. Like I say, the guy had talent. The first essay talks about System D, where he refers to a man who, when he's told how to do the impossible, will get it done anyhow. That was System D. He goes on to describe how things can get quite hectic and quite messy when you're working in tight conditions in a kitchen with people who may or may not like each other very much. Said Bourdain, at times like these, even one heroic practitioner of System D can save the day, step in, and turn the tide. One guy can make the difference between another successful Saturday night and total chaos. We can go home laughing about all we endured, feeling good about ourselves, talking about the bus that didn't hit us, instead of slinking out the door quietly, mulling over, La puta vida, muttering half-formed recriminations. Now, I've heard and seen some very fine chefs sneer at the system. I would never do that, they say, when told of some culinary outrage performed in another kitchen. Never, they insist, with all the assurance of an officer on the pre-war Maginot line. But when the Huns start pouring over the wall, there's no fire support, and the rear guard is in full retreat. These same chefs are often the first guys to commit food crimes that even the most pragmatic practitioner of System D would never, okay, almost never do. Fast, well-done steak? I've watched French grads of three-star kitchens squeeze the blood out of a filet mignon with their full body weight, turning a medium to well in seconds. I've watched in horror as chefs have hurled beautiful Chateaubriands into the deep fire frat, I've watched in horror as chefs have hurled beautiful Chateaubriands into the deep fat fryer, microwaved veal chops, thin sauce with the brackish greasy water in the steam table, and when it gets busy, everything that falls on the floor amazingly falls right on the napkin. Let me tell you, that's one mighty big napkin. System D arguably reached its heyday in the Victorian era. Railway hotels where the menus were huge, and it was not unusual for an extra 200 guests to show up wanting, say, the fricassee of lobster thermidor, for which only 50 portions were available, suddenly 
Thermidor for 50 was transformed into Thermidor for 200. Don't ask how, you don't want to know. And how about an excerpt or two from an essay titled The Evildoers? I'm on the subway after a long, hard day in the kitchen. I want to sit down. There are three seats in front of me in the crowded subway car. Unfortunately, one miserable fat bastard is taking up all three of them. As he sits glumly but defiantly in a center seat, his gigantic butt cheeks and thighs spill out of the molded plastic buckets under the seats on both sides, and his beady eyes dare me to try and squeeze my bony ass into one of the narrow spaces next to him. Dream sequence. I'm on a packed commuter flight. We're going down on a forced landing in a Midwestern cornfield. Engine one's on fire. The cabin fills up with smoke. Panicky passengers overturn their meal trays as they rush the emergency exits. The pilot manages to plow the plane belly down onto soft earth. But when the plane in flames now comes to a full stop and the emergency doors pop free, the 300-pound ectomorph at the window seat becomes lodged firmly and inexorably in the small doorway. At the head of the aisle, another giant bastard collapses, wheezing onto the floor, blocking egress. As my hair catches on fire, the last thing I see is jiggly back fat. Whose fault is it? Who made my fellow Americans obese, if not morbidly obese? How did the age-old question that poor equals thin and rich equals fat change so that now our working poor are huge and slow-moving and only the wealthy can afford the personal trainers, liposuction, and extended spot treatments required? It would seem to be thin. Said Bourdain, we know the answer. America's most dangerous export was never nuclear weapons, or Jerry Lewis, or even Baywatch reruns. It was, is, and probably always be our fast food outlets. He closes that one with, Whenever possible, try to eat food that comes from somewhere, from somebody. and Stop eating so much. A little portion control will go a long way in slimming down our herds of heavyweights in their tent-like shirts, gap easy-fit pants, and baggy shorts. You may want to stop snacking on crap while you're at it. You don't need that bag of chips between meals, do you? You're probably not even enjoying it. Save your appetite for something good. Take a little more time. Eat for nourishment, yes, but eat for pleasure. Stop settling for less. If only we'd follow his advice. Anyway, if you've never seen his show, dear listener, um, you know, check it out. And if you are interested in a, a good documentary about him, Roadrunner will fulfill your needs. And I don't know where I came up with this little meme. I think someone sent it to me. I, I, I don't know. Uh, talking about Bourdain's writing skills. <laughs> this meme was some of the best words ever, which I suppose aspiring writers might want to consider using. I like some of these. Hoodwink. Humbug. Jalopy. Bamboozled. Flabbergasted. Brouhaha. Discombobulated. Malarkey. Poppycock. Balderdash, <laughs> flimflam, doohickey, gobsmacked, thigamabob, camaraderie, knucklehead, wishy-washy, tomfoolery, baloney, kerfuffle, numbskull. I recommend you introduce these into your writings, just, just to spice things up. I do. And how about this bit of comedy from Andy Borowitz? Headline, Republicans protest lack of rioters in January 6th commission. That's about right, isn't it? Let's do our own brand of fun with captions and go to one of our perennial favorites, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Hey, 
According to the Week magazine, it was a good week recently for political correctness. With the news that a Washington Post food writer is advising people to stop calling foods exotic because it reinforces xenophobia and racism. In an essay, G. Daniela Galarza argued that the word reflects a dominant white perspective that diminishes other cultures and lengthens the metaphysical distance between one group of humans and another. We strongly suspect that the late Anthony Bourdain would not be on board with this. It was, on the other hand, a bad week, we'd have to say, for, well, the Thurston Howell III type, with the report that residents of New York's Hamptons are complaining that a post-pandemic labor shortage has forced them to do their own gardening and grooming. Reportedly, an alarmed East Hampton resident said, you can't get your nails done. Everyone is going for the natural look. Yes, I'm sorry, I can't resist reading this in the voice of Thurston Howell III, which is probably the only funny thing that ever (laughs) was associated with the Gilligan's Island TV program. Another Hamptonite was reportedly said he had to buy a lawnmower and cut my own lawn. But evidently, the resident was able to find a silver lining in all that, adding, I had to take off my $800 sneakers first, but it was actually satisfying. Oh, and by the way, speaking of old TV shows that were meant to be comedic, well, I don't think, I don't think Gilligan's Island succeeded, but I think Batman did, and we do hope to bring on in the weeks to come the former boy wonder, Burt Ward, to talk about uh, what I think is one of the funniest shows that was ever on television. But moving right along, we'd have to say it was an ugly week last week, I guess it was maybe two weeks ago, for planet Earth after a 130-degree temperature was registered at Furnace Creek, California. Now, I heard it is 135 and a new planetary record. It's being described as the highest reliably measured temperature in human history. And please, don't try and reassure me that, you know, once you get up to 130, it doesn't matter after that. Or that it's a dry heat. We would note as an addendum that according to NBCNews.com, the month of June was by far the hottest June in U.S. history. In 127 years of record-keeping, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, California had a statewide average 6.8 degrees above normal. While during a prolonged heat wave in the Pacific Northwest, temperatures soared 40, 40 degrees above average. And in some political news, we haven't talked about politics for a while, at least since we had spoke with Dennis Kucinich last month, uh, we have the fact that the Trump Organization has apparently stripped longtime CFO Alan Weisselberg of leadership roles in more than 40 of its subsidiaries. This is after he and the company were charged with running a 15-year tax fraud scheme. Weisselberg, 73, is the company's top executive outside of the Trump family. He will will remain at the company while he contests the indictment, but will no longer serve as as director of Trump's Scottish Golf Club, among other former roles. He's accused of evading $900,000 in taxes, which kind of seems like chump change to us, but, you know, we'll see where that leads. We also note in a possibly related story that the former South African president, in this case Jacob Zuma, was finally putting on orange overalls. In a landmark ruling some weeks back, The Constitutional Court in South Africa sentenced him to 15 months in prison for contempt of court 
for failing to fear for failing to appear before a commission investigating corruption during his nine years in office. Zuma plotted to defy that sentence too, refusing for a full week to present himself to police before finally giving up when it became clear that his African National Congress party could no longer back him. God, imagine that, a political party refusing to back a corrupt former president. Hmm. Jacob Zuma is alleged, among other things, to have allowed the Gupta brothers, an Indian-born billionaire businessman, to name cronies to government ministries. Unfortunately, after this, there was rioting in Durban, South Africa. Violent riots after Jacob Zuma was jailed. At least 72 people were killed in stampedes, fires, and clashes with police. More than 200 shopping malls were looted, and some 800 people were arrested in the worst violence the country had seen since the anti-apartheid protests of the 1990s. We would hope that if Donald Trump ever gets fitted for an orange jumpsuit himself, that we will not see this sort of violence here in the United States. But seeing the sort of armed militias that uh, seem to offer up support for Donald Trump, well, we're just a little apprehensive. And as I look down at a bunch of other uh, news regarding national leaders of other countries, I, I um, um, well, my heart sinks. <laughs> I don't feel like reading them because it's just a lot of bad news about a lot of things going wrong in a lot of places. So I'm going to skip it for now. Here's a stat that's going to require some further investigation. According to Monmouth University, which I hope is a bunch of conservative cranks, their poll says 81% of Americans support requiring an ID in order to vote including, it's alleged, 62% of Democrats. I got my doubts about this. One thing I don't have too many doubts about is the fact that uh, 50 years on, we really should uh, reevaluate our war on drugs here in the United States. Writing in El Universal in Mexico, Jose Melendez said, It is now 50 years since the U.S. launched its war on drugs, a conflict that has achieved little besides corrupting Latin American democracy. The war began on June 17, 1971, when Richard Nixon, angry that Vietnam veterans were coming home addicted to heroin and eager to distract the public from civil rights protests, declared drug abuse to be public enemy number one. The U.S. has since funneled more than one trillion, with a T, dollars into its drug war, yet last year a record 90,000 Americans died of an overdose. In Latin America, the toll is incalculable. Governments in the region were forced to crack down hard on drug production and trafficking to avoid being hit with U.S. sanctions. But those crackdowns simply drove up drug prices, making the trade vastly more profitable and empowering the cartels. When governments tried to squash them, the gangs began buying off cops, then mayors, then judges, then senators, then presidents. The war caused a domino effect as each corrupt politician in turn corrupted another, and now the criminality involves political parties, businesses, and bankers in a network of corruption across Latin America. It's hard to disagree with any of that. But if it is true, and I believe it is true, that uh, wars are often really easy to get into and almost impossible to get out of, well, we have a prime example here with the war on drugs. And the truth is, if you look at other nations around the world that have not followed our example, but instead decriminalized drugs, you will find generally that drug use did not go up. We're reading a classic account of this. I read this like 35 years ago, describing what happened in the U.S. versus the U.K. and how they approached heroin. In the U.K., they passed laws that required a registered addict 
that's what they call them, a registered addict, to obtain a doctor's prescription to go to a pharmacy and obtain his heroin. At that point in time, there were, I don't know, a few thousand heroin addicts in the UK. About the same time, more than a century ago, the United States decided it would be hardline in its approach and ban heroin, cocaine, and a bunch of other drugs. As with prohibition, the restriction of the drugs raised the price and made it much more profitable for a businessman to sell these addicting drugs to others. And I, although I don't remember the exact statistics at the time, I, I believe that it was estimated that the city of Detroit alone had more heroin addicts than did the UK. How come all those people that favor, you know, a, a market approach to problem solving failed to see how the market would work against any efforts to restrict drugs in this case? I, I don't know. By the way, I listened uh, a few days ago to Harry Shearer's Le Show. And it really struck me how much his is going on on this topic or that. Uh, reminded me of what we do here, Radio Parallax. In other words, we think the show is a pretty good show. Wouldn't you agree, Mr. Merlin? Not as good as Parallax, but it'll do. I think on our next show, we're going to have to talk more about the January 6th insurrection. We're running out of time today, so I think about all we can do is comment on uh, the revisionism going on regarding that event from the GOP. Anyway, the next time we sit down to do a full program, I think we're going to make this just a half a show and put it up on the web. We'll probably talk about the January 6th insurrection and the GOP's revisionist view of what, what took place that day, which is which would be humorous if it wasn't so serious. We can't resist quoting from the Washington Post that noted that congressional Republicans are engaged in a multi-pronged effort to gaslight the public about a violent uprising in which rioters ransacked offices, chanted, hang Mike Pence, and injured over 140 law enforcement officers who were stomped, beaten, tased, and speared with poles, leading to traumatic brain injuries, crushed spinal discs, burns, eye damage, and a heart attack. The mob's express intent in smashing their way into the Capitol was to prevent Congress from certifying the electoral votes that made Joe Biden president. So Donald Trump could be reinstalled via a coup. Yet Representative Andrew Clyde, Republican of Georgia, has likened the insurrection to a normal tourist visit, while Representative Paul Gosar, Republican of Arizona, called the insurrectionists peaceful patriots. Noted the Post, in the latest disgrace, 21 House Republicans voted against honoring Capitol Police defenders, largely because they objected to the event being termed an insurrection. To which we can only say, wow. We're going to end it here and note that this program, like all of them, was produced by Edward McMillan. And that we here at Radio Parallax will see you soon.